I want to start out here with a little activity, and I'm going to need you to respond a little bit just by saying out or in. There's no right, well, I guess there is a right answer to this, but I'm not going to call you out if you're wrong. But if you say out, it means something is outdated or obsolete. We don't need it or use it anymore. And if you say in, it's still popular or it's still being used today. So let me start out with the first one. Polaroid cameras. Out. Does anyone still have a Polaroid camera? There's probably a lot of dust on that, yeah. Polaroid cameras are out. With digital cameras, we don't need them anymore. What about pay phones? Out. Who doesn't have a cell phone these days? Uh, we don't need pay phones anymore. Language. You needed language to respond to that. You can't really communicate without language. We need language. Language is still in, and it always will be in. How about this one? English. In. Yeah. Uh, if I knew how to say in in a different language, I would, but I don't. So English is still in. Tractors? In. Some of you have some old tractors that look nice and got prizes for it this weekend, so they're still in, right? And some of you still use tractors as well. What about silent movies? When's the last time you've seen a silent movie? Kids, have you even heard of silent movies? It was a real thing. Oh, good. They're good. <laughs> they're entertaining, too. The Pony Express? Out, right? We Still in? Not... Uh, they, well, they still do the reenactment, but we don't need it anymore because we've got transportation that's a lot faster than the Pony Express. How about computers? In? Yeah, try and live without a computer these days. It's getting har harder and harder. Uh, here's one of my favorites, a Walkman. <laughs> out, unfortunately, still out. Who listens to tapes these days? Our van still has a tape player, and we've been listening to a lot when we travel, and we enjoy it. Uh, the radio? Yeah. In. It's still in. Radio's still here. Farmers, I'm sure you use radios to communicate with other farmers as well, our spouses. How about the Constitution? Yeah. Still in. Yep, and praise God for that. But most of these things that we just talked about, most of them are out. Most of them are things that we've seen within our lifetimes except the Pony Express. I think that's before all of our times here. But some of these that are in this list here are here to stay. It's hard to live without them. And this morning we're going to look at something else that's here to stay, that's something that's not going to go away, regardless of how man may try to manipulate it, regardless of how man may try to twist it or get rid of it, it still stands. So follow along in your Bibles as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and we'll see what this timeless standard is. And I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. That's Matthew chapter 5, reading verses 17 through 20. Reading in Jesus' name. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then and all is one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father God, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us in your truth this morning. Open our hearts and our ears to receive the message that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
You may be seated. This morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to look, in, we're going to look at the law of God, and we'll see three specific points about it. The first is how the law of God stands, and next, how the law of God is changed, and third and finally, how the law of God is upheld. Let's begin by looking at how the law of God stands. Right away in our text, Jesus makes the statement in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And as Jesus is presenting this thought, the way he presents it, he is emphatically forbidding it. Don't even let that thought cross your mind that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to do that. Now a lot of, well, we have to first of all understand what the law and the prophets are. What does Jesus mean when he says the law and the prophets? And just like someone might say nice wheels to someone, they're not just talking about the wheels or the tires or the rims on the car. They're usually talking about the whole car, right? As Jesus says, the law and the prophets, he's talking about a portion of Scripture, but referring to the whole. The whole Old Testament is what Jesus is referring to here. Jesus says, don't think that I came to get rid of the Old Testament. That's not what I came to do. But there's an idea that goes around in the church today that the Old Testament's not important, that we don't need it anymore, that since God is love, what he said before doesn't really matter. And it's true that God is love. It's a biblical statement. It's found in 1 John 4.8. As Jesus says this, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There it is. But when people get into trouble is when they say, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, just love other people and do the best that you can. God is love. It doesn't matter what you do. You'll be okay. But to put it bluntly, that's just wrong. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't say, I came to get rid of all the old things that I've said before in the Old Testament so that you can do whatever you want. <clears throat> to quote the Honorable Dr. Huxtable, as he's talking to his son, he says, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Jesus could have maybe been heard saying that same thing about this idea that Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets. This isn't what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to abolish the law. During the confirmation examination that I had with Jenna and Austin, I asked them a question that wasn't on the study sheet, so they had no idea that it was coming. I said, which testament is more important, the New Testament or the Old Testament? And they paused for a while, but they both had the right answer. What is the right answer? Both. Neither of them is more important than the other one. They're both God's word, and they're both important. As Jesus said, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament, but I have come to fulfill that news. A lot of times people will think that the Old Testament is just old news and it's not worth spending time reading. And if you might think that today, I would encourage you to come to Sunday school as we're going through some Old Testament stories that you've probably heard before, but Old Testament stories that point us to Christ and that still show us uh, that they still are impactful for us in our lives here today as well. We looked at the fall and how that's still applicable in our lives today that we see that man has sinned and we are still sinners because of that. But we see the promise of the gospel, the promise of a Savior coming in that, in that story as well. This morning we looked at the flood and we saw how God wiped away sin from this world, from all the wicked man. And we looked again at how God is ultimately, finally dealing with sin and his son on the cross. The next couple of weeks we'll look at a few more stories. But Jesus tells the Jews who are looking to kill him in John chapter 5, 
he tells them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's true, we find eternal life in scriptures. But what are the scriptures here that Jesus is talking about? What scriptures do these Jews have at the time of Christ? The New Testament isn't written yet. It's the Old Testament. And what does Jesus say about this? It is these that testify about me. The Old Testament points us to Christ, and the Old Testament is still important. Jesus says the law and the prophets are here to stay. I did not come to abolish them. When Jesus came, he didn't come to bring in a new law. He didn't come to change the old one or to throw out the old law. The law remains the same. What God has said in the Old Testament still stands today. And as he says in verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not even the tiniest word of the law will fall away is what Jesus is saying here. The bottom line here is that the law is not going away. It's here to stay. And Jesus says the law isn't going to change. But how do we reconcile that fact with the fact that people have changed? That our culture has changed? That the law was first given at least 4,000 years ago? Can you think of anything else that's still valid that's 4,000 years old? Isn't it outdated? Man has always tried to change God's law, and it's not something that's new today. It's something that happened at the time of Christ. It's something that happened before the time of Christ as well. Whether they were trying to interpret it in a different way, whether they were just flat out rejecting it or explaining it away so that they don't have to worry about what God's word says. And the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of Christ were great at twisting the law of God into such a way to make it attainable. Honor the Sabbath day, that means you can't walk a certain distance. All of these things, it would list them down to different actions to do or not to do so that they can say that I am righteous, so that they can say I am holy, I am pure. I have kept the law of God. And sin became just an outward action rather than looking at the heart, rather than looking at where sin originates in our own lives, from our own hearts. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes through in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and he goes through some of the different sins that we're aware of. And, and he goes through and he says, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder. That doesn't mean just don't kill someone. It means don't get angry with your brother. It means don't even hate someone. That's something that's from the heart. That's not an action. He says, even if you look at a woman lustfully, not even touching her, you've still committed adultery with her in your heart. And you are still guilty of God's law. The Pharisees didn't have these standards, but this is the standard that God had meant originally when he first gave the law. It's to show us the sin that resides in our own hearts. And as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, as you look at the last verse in Matthew chapter 5, we see the law of God. The law of God summarized into one verse, and this law of God that does not change, will not change, and will never change change. And the last verse in chapter 5 says this, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the law. Be perfect as God is perfect. And no matter how much man tries to change the law, no matter how much man tries to rewrite the laws or to erase things that might be offensive to other people, the law of God still stands and God's requirement for us is that we be perfect as he is perfect. And the standard is still the same. And you can say to yourself, but that's not possible. And it's true. 
It's not possible. We can't uphold the law of God, but just because it's not possible for us to do doesn't mean that God's standard has changed. God's standard still remains the same, and we're all guilty. So how do we deal with this truth? Do you tell yourself, ah, it's old. God didn't really mean that for me today. It's 2017. That's outdated stuff, right? Do we tell ourselves that? Or do we look around and let culture decide what's God's law and what isn't God's law? Good job, Evan. No, we don't. The people in Jesus' day explained the laws of God away. They said, this is what God's word really means. And they would go and do these other things. And they would forget about the perfection that God required of them. It became just a list of do's and don'ts. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's the tendency of our own hearts. That when we come across the law of God and we say it's perfect and God requires us to be perfect, do we say, well, God, that's impossible. How can you expect me to be perfect? God would never require me to do something that I can't physically actually do, would he? But the law of God still stands and he still calls us to be perfect. When we come across a convicting passage of scripture, how often do we write ourselves out of that passage of scripture? and say, this wasn't meant for me. And God wasn't talking to me here when he's told me to love my neighbor as myself, when he's told me to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. Surely God doesn't mean me. We've got other things that do that. And we look to other sources of authority to soothe our stricken consciences when we come up against God's law. And our sinful hearts want to applaud the wisdom of religious leaders back in the day and in our day today that can explain away our sin, that can write us off and say, you just keep doing what you do, do the best that you can, and you'll be all right. And so we buy books that tell us how to live better lives. We buy books that tell us how to be the best that you can be. We listen to sermons on what I need to do to fix my life so that I'm perfect, so that I can be as righteous as I can. And we throw out God's laws. His simple standard, be perfect as I am perfect. Our sinful nature admires these great theologians and scholars, but God doesn't. Friends, God's word stands as it is, and if it is convicting you today, it is to show you your sin and your need of a Savior. It's to show me my sin and my need of a Savior as well. But we tell ourselves, well, yeah, but at least it's not one of those major sins. You know, those ones that I can't even say it from a pulpit. At least it's not those that I'm doing. But what does God's word say? In verse 19 of our text, it says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will still be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He says, Whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven people who are writing away God's laws, people who say, well, at least it's not one of those major sins. At least I didn't really kill anybody. That would be really bad. It says we're least in the kingdom of heaven. And some of us might say, hey, at least we're still in the kingdom of heaven, right? I may be least, but that's all right. I still made it there. But if you look at the next verse, God tells us what's required of us in order to attain heaven. What does God's word say? In verse 20, Jesus tells us what is needed to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous person that you could ever imagine. The scribes and the Pharisees were as righteous as the Pope. 
they're as righteous as uh, previous pastors before me because I wouldn't say that I'm all that righteous. They're more righteous than your parents were, more righteous than the most perfect person you can think of in your mind that you've seen live on this life. And Jesus is saying your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And to the original audience that are hearing this, they're already at a loss because the scribes and the Pharisees have a much greater head start on them because they've lived their whole lives according to the book, according to these laws. And how do they make up for lost time? Maybe if they try harder to be righteous. Maybe if I do more good works. Maybe if I give a little more money away. Maybe if I pray more often. Maybe if I come to the temple or if I come to church more often or if I'm always at Sunday school. Maybe then I could be more righteous than these scribes and the Pharisees. But yet, what does God's word say? It doesn't say come to church more often. It doesn't say try harder. God's word simply says you must be perfect as I am perfect. And if we're honest with ourselves, as we confront that truth, we must admit as well as every other living human being, woe is me for I have sinned and I am unrighteous. And my righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees and the scribes, and I am doomed. And if this is what Jesus came to do, to tell everyone, try harder, try your best, be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, to give us a more stricter law to follow, to give us some good moral pointers to life, to live, find out how we can live our best life now, we'd be up a crick without a paddle, and we'd still be lost and condemned without a hope, without even a prayer of being more righteous than the Pharisees, and never would we see the glories of heaven. But thankfully, that's not the end of our text. There's a part of a verse here that I haven't touched on in order to emphasize this point. Did you catch the part, the most important part of this whole section in verse 17? The very end of verse 17, what does Jesus say? I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ is the one who has come to live a perfect life, to fulfill every single aspect of the law. And Jesus came to show us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, but not only just to show us, but to actually be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the righteousness that we need, the righteousness that's required of us in order to gain heaven. Jesus came to manifest the love of God for us, and that God sent his only begotten son to die for us so that we might live through him. Jesus came not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The, passage, the, the passages in scripture that talk about Jesus being our advocate, not once does it say, uh, God, just forgive them because they're trying the best that they can. They're in between a rock and a hard spot, and God, you really can't hold them accountable for that, can you? I mean, they're doing the best that they can. Besides, I know Tom. He's a good guy. He's in church all the time. It's not what Jesus says, but instead Jesus points to what he has done. And he says, Father, forgive them because of what I have done. I have paid the penalty for their sins, and I have given them my righteousness. Don't hold their guilt against them anymore. Because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the one who came to accomplish righteousness, to fulfill the law. Not to write off the law, but to fulfill it so that you and I can fulfill the law. Not because we do it, but because Christ has done it for us. He was the Savior whom God sent to reconcile the world to himself. 
And he is a man in whom there is no sin, yet a man who willingly took upon himself every single one of our sins. And for what? In order to give us his righteousness. It's true that in order to enter the pearly gates of heaven, our righteousness needs to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It must be something entirely different, something entirely foreign from ourselves if we are ever to hope of eternity in heaven. But praise God through Jesus Christ that he has given us, those who trust in him, a righteousness completely other, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And it is for the sake of Christ and for the sake of Jesus Christ alone, by his life, his death, and his resurrection, that the Father can declare us holy, righteous, and pure. And as Rod read from Romans chapter 3, that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just not because he writes away the law and says, don't worry about that standard, I never meant that for you. But he is just and that he upholds the law and he is the justifier and that he has given us the one who has fulfilled the law on our behalf, his one and only son. And he freely gives us that righteousness which surpasses that of the Pharisees. And so the question comes, the necessary question comes, so how do I get this righteousness? How can this righteousness become my own? Because this is the only shot that I have at earning heaven, at gaining heaven. And the answer is, it's not something that you do, it's something what God has done. It comes by faith. It comes by grace. It's not by our own strength. It's not by our own merit. It's not by our own works. It's not by praying twice as much as other people. It's not by giving more in the offering plate. It's not by your own decision to live today better than yesterday, but it's simply by the grace of what God has given us in Jesus Christ, that Jesus freely came to come and live and fulfill the law on your behalf. And by grace, through faith, through the hearing of the gospel, through the hearing of the word, he applies this truth to your life. And as we hold on to that and we trust, not in our works, but in the work of what Christ has done, that Jesus has paid it all. We are righteous, and God calls us pure, holy, and blameless. Jesus Christ calls us God's obedient, holy children because Jesus Christ is our satisfaction. Jesus Christ is a fulfillment. He is a sacrifice. He is our Savior, and he is our righteousness for those who acknowledge their sin and repent and look to Jesus and trust in his work for the forgiveness of sins. I began this sermon by asking about a bunch of objects that were either obsolete or in. And today, Jesus has shown us in his word that his law is still in today. It's still the requirement that each one of us is held accountable to. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. His law is not outdated. His law stands. It has not changed and it will not change. He requires perfection. And as we brush up against the laws of God, we realize again and again that woe is me, for I have sinned and I am unrighteous. And rather than the text ending there, Jesus Christ shows us in his word, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And he shows us in his word that he gives us his righteousness. As we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as he takes our sin upon himself on the cross, he willingly gives us his righteousness. And so in Christ, as he has fulfilled the law on your behalf, you are pure, you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless, you are a child of God, and you do fulfill the law. Praise be to God, and amen. Father God, we thank you for this truth. 
We thank you for your law, Lord, even though it's so hard for us to keep track of what you want us to do. Lord, it's hard for us to live up to that standard. It's impossible for us to live up to that standard. But God, every time that we fall short, help us not to look to our own actions to try harder next time, but help us to look to what you have done for us, that you have forgiven us of our sins, and we're not judged by our righteousness at the end of the day, but we're judged by your righteousness, which is perfect and holy, that you have fulfilled the law for our behalf, and you are our Savior. We praise you for that. God, help us to live our lives in view of this freedom, to live our lives in view of this grace, and to trust in you each of the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.